Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 10 this morning. If you, if you don't have a Bible this morning, if, if you could look on with somebody else besides you, or um, if you need a Bible, we can get one to you from our, from our resource table, from our book table. Um, anybody not have a Bible or want a Bible? Excellent. Well, good. Um, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. As we're getting started, it's just I was thinking about this week, what's, what's the best news that we've ever gotten? You know, what's the best news that I've ever gotten personally? What's, what's the best news that you've ever gotten in your life? What's the best news you've received? Just take a moment for a second and think, okay, what's the best news I've ever gotten? Was it that you graduated maybe? Maybe some of you just graduated and you just, you just scraped by and you're like, oh my goodness, that was great news when I got my diploma. That was wonderful. Maybe it was when the love of your life said yes or when they asked you to marry them. Maybe it was the dream job that you always wanted, you just got. Maybe that was the best news you've ever gotten. Maybe it was when you got your first home. That's good news. Maybe it was when you found out you were pregnant. Or maybe, maybe you're younger. You, you found out you passed the test that you studied so long for. Maybe it was you found out you're getting a little brother or a little sister. Maybe it was when you found out that you're going to take the trip that you'd always wanted to. You always dreamed of your entire life going to, I don't know, Hawaii. And now, you know what? You're, you're going to get to go. And it's free. What, what's the best news you've ever gotten? Maybe it was opening an envelope from Fannie Mae and reading that, that all of your student loans were paid off. Maybe that was the best news. That was good news when my wife, my wife got that letter. <laughs> Let me read you some of the responses to the same question. It was posted on a, on a website called Reddit. And somebody was just asking, what's the best news you've ever gotten? So some of the responses, they were... They were sobering and also just, wow, that, that's, that's encouraging. One of them was, my father no longer has throat cancer. My dad retired from the Air Force this year, which means he won't have to deploy overseas anymore. Best news in so many years. I got a job offer this morning. Not the best news in here, but after a long string of rejections, I can't put into words what a relief it is. Maybe you can identify with some of these things. That after being homeless with my mother... Little sister and little brother, we are finally getting a new home in the city. That's good news. You'll make a 90% recovery. HIV negative. My two-year-old no longer needed to take her heart medication. Knowing somebody loves me now. My dad didn't die from four massive strokes. After seven months of uncertainty, he's home with our family I sold my house, bought one with cash. I'm debt free. I passed my PhD defense. In February, after a 35 day stay in the NICU, hearing the words, we're going to discharge you guys tomorrow. What's the best news that you've gotten in your life thus far? A few years ago, my brother was diagnosed with a rare form of a disease called amyloidosis. It's a disease where your body creates proteins that are deposited in your organs in places they don't belong and it causes all your organs to begin to shut down systematically the rare form that he had the diagnosis was 100 percent fatal within 12 months it's quite a call remember getting that call at conference i was just thinking boy that changes my perspective on my relationship with my brother it changes a lot changes how i view life how precious life is the gift of life Begin to think about my relationship with my siblings. You know, often bad news can be the very wake-up call that we need in life at times. Bad news can actually be a form of help to us at times. I remember the first funeral I preached at, and it was for a 24-year-old who was gunned down, connected to gang and drug activity, and hearing his mom wail. His brother weeping uncontrollably who worked for me. It was, it was horrible news. It ended up changing his brother's life. His brother was a changed man from then on. He lived differently. Um, he lived for what mattered. He, lived, he had closer relationships with his family. He cleaned up his act. He, he became a, a great employee. He ended up promoting him a, a year later. 
my brother, when he got the diagnosis of amyloidosis, it was, it was bad, bad news. And he was saying, you know, I, they say 12 months is the max, but they don't think I'm going to last that long. And so he went through all kinds of treatments that didn't seem to work. He couldn't walk. He couldn't get out of bed. Nothing worked. So we prayed and prayed. And people in his church prayed. And I think everybody he, he knows prayed. He asked everybody, he called everybody up, could you pray for me, please? So some of the best news my brother ever received, he went back for routine checkup. And they discovered that somehow, miraculously, all of your amyloidosis symptoms are gone. You, you don't have the disease anymore. It's in, the, the form you had was incurable, um, but it's gone. So we don't know what happened. That was good news. It was good news for my brother, good news for my family. It was some of the best news I could have imagined at the time. Often we, we need to understand the condition before we can understand how good it is that we have it. Often when we, if, if my brother didn't know how deadly amyloidosis was, if my employee didn't have, hadn't had his brother been killed, it, he wouldn't have been affected in the same way. My brother, it became joyful news. He appreciated life so much more and viewed things differently, hearing that he no longer had the disease. It was the best news ever for him. In Ephesians 2.10, in our passage this morning, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He's writing to Christians. And you see, these, these people, they have, they have been persecuted. They have been under pressure. They have been confused about who they are, their identity. They've been, they've been persecuted by the Romans, persecuted by their families. They've had a hard time adjusting this Christian life. It's not an easy one, they discovered. And so Paul, he's been telling them over the first chapter of Ephesians 1 of what it is that they have in Christ and who they are in Christ. And so, but sometimes for us as Christians, for them as Christians too, Paul knew that we have a tendency to to take lightly good news. That we, we have a tendency to not focus on where our true source of joy and hope should be. And they had a tendency probably not to focus on where their true source of joy and hope should be as well. And get distracted by all these significant but comparatively lesser things. Significant suffering, significant hardships, but comparatively lesser. And so what is Paul doing now in Ephesians chapter 2? He's telling them that I want you to know joy, but in order to do that, I have to give you some bad news. I got to give you some really bad news. He says, you don't know it, but you were really dead before you were Christians. Let me tell you who you are, what your condition was, what the diagnosis was, what the prognosis for your disease of sin and your nature and actions. Let me show you what that was. And he says, you were walking dead people. You were the walking dead. And not only that, you were following the flesh and the world and the devil. And you didn't even know it. And this morning, maybe you are here and you are not a Christian. You've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ. The bad news that you need to hear in these verses is that you're the walking dead. But Paul says, he doesn't leave it there. He says, he speaks to all the, all the people and he says to Christians, we all were once dead. We all once were the walking dead. You had a fatal disease. You're already dead spiritually. You're not only following your own passions. You're following the course of this world. The devil was at work in you. It's pretty terrifying on its own, isn't it? But one day, Paul is telling them that they'll physically die. And because they are children of wrath, that means they're going to experience the just eternal wrath of God. That's bad news. And that bad news applies to everyone here who's not placed their hope and trust in Jesus. It's meant to put everything else into perspective. Let's read the passage now. Let's read God's holy word. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It tells us really the rest of the story. It's, this is God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. 
in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's God's holy, inspired word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we sometimes need reminders of, of who we are in you. Lord, thank you that we need reminders of who we once were. God, thank you for giving us this scripture that tells us of our past, of who we once really were. So that, Lord, it can affect us and give us joy in who we are now. Father, I pray that the effect of this scripture in our time would would be that there would be no hope in ourselves, but there would be full and complete hope in You, the God of all grace. God, I pray that the result of this passage and of this preaching would be joy in You. An unshakable, lasting joy that wouldn't be affected by circumstances and situations, things we don't expect. But Lord, I pray that our joy would be in You, the God of all grace, who has made us alive in Christ Jesus by your great mercy and kindness. And God, uh, we also want to lift up the church in Melbourne, Lord. They've received unexpected news. Now, Jim and Corey received unexpected news. Things are not as they planned there. Lord, we want to pray for that church this morning. They are our brothers and sisters. Lord, we're going to pray for uh, Jim and Corey as they transition out as well, Lord. Thank you that you are the God of all grace. I pray that you would pour out your grace on Jim and Corey as they transition down to Miami. And I pray that your grace would be poured out on the church in Melbourne, that your will would be done, your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And God, I pray for the Titusville church. You would strengthen them to and give them wisdom as they care for the Melbourne church. Lord, for all of us, may we look to you in hope, in greater hope, because you have saved us from utter hopelessness. In your name we pray. Amen. What is the best news the Ephesians ever received? They might have thought that it would have been that their loved ones would be freed from jail, that that persecution would end and Paul is saying that's not the thing, the best thing to hope for. Those are good things and those are things you can pray for and should pray for. We should pray for those in prison and elsewhere in Scripture tells us to do that. We should pray for those who are suffering, for relief from suffering. We should pray that God works mightily. We should pray those things. However, we should pray those things in perspective that the greatest news has already been given to us. The greatest news has already been given to the Ephesian church and to our church and so What's Paul telling them? What's the Holy Spirit saying to us this morning? I believe that God wants us all to have His divine perspective. God doesn't ignore hardships. He doesn't ignore pain. He doesn't ignore sufferings. Paul wasn't ignoring that the Ephesians were in a difficult spot. 
But God wanted them to see their troubles and perspective, difficulties in perspective and, and keep their hope fixed on the one place that's completely sure. I believe that's God's heart for us this morning as well, is to fix our hope on the one place that's completely sure. And how do we do that? By focusing on the best news we've ever gotten. In order to understand the best news we've ever gotten, you have to understand just how bad we really were. And so Paul's helping, helping us with our perspective. You know, sometimes... In life, you may feel like you're riding up and down on the swells of life. And it, sometimes it feels like that, that next wave that's coming, it's so big, you can't see over the top. And, and you're never, you're never going to make it. And we need to get perspective sometimes to see that we, it, it, it's bad, but it was far worse than you know. And God made us alive and rescued us. He wanted the Ephesian church to have perspective. He wants us to have perspective to live our light, our, our lives in light of the greatest news that we've ever received. That's what it, it means for our identity to be a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is to live in light of the, of, of the greatest news we've ever gotten, the greatest thing that ever happened to us, and to live in light of that for, for all of our lives. You might sum up this whole passage. You could say it simply in one sentence. You would say it like this. And we don't have overheads this morning, so you may have to take notes. It's okay. It's very simple. Sum up the whole passage. It's, we were dead and hopeless. We were dead and hopeless. But God made us alive to show us His grace. We were dead and hopeless. But God made us alive to show us His grace. If you don't have a personal relationship with God, if you haven't trusted in Jesus and His sacrifice for you, for forgiveness and experienced new life, let me shoot straight with you. I'm not going to manipulate you. I want to give you a clear, accurate diagnosis of the condition you have. For Christians, let me shoot straight with you, give you perspective from this passage. We need perspective if we're going to have true joy and true hope. And here it is. Here's the diagnosis from Scripture. The very first thing we're going to look at, the very first point from our passage really, is that left to ourselves, left to ourselves, we are the walking dead. Left to ourselves, we are the walking dead. If Jesus has not yet saved you, if you've not put your trust in Him, you're, you're, you're just a dead man walking and you don't know it. Left to ourselves were the walking dead. In verse 1 it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. It doesn't say you were partially alive, you were sick, you were feeble, you had a poor diagnosis. No, you were dead. Not that you were about to die. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You had a far worse prognosis than you could ever dream of. He's been reminding his, his readers, Paul has, about who they are in Christ and what they become in Christ. And in the verses prior, he's been praising God for exalting Jesus and putting everything underneath of Jesus and making Jesus his head over all things for the church. Now he's reminding them of who they once were apart from Christ because he wants them to have real hope. And he, he's saying to them that they lived in a, a state of constantly transgressing or, or constantly failing to live up to God's wall, laws, constantly disobeying God's laws. They were transgressing in a state. They were dead in transgressions. They were constantly doing that. And they were also dead in their sins. They were actively disobeying God. Maybe you're walking in sin continually. If so, this verse is speaking to you. You are the walking dead. Paul writes that you were once spiritually dead. He said you were lost under the complete and utter dominion of death. You didn't know any spiritual life. Not only were you born into a state of spiritual death, alienation, and separation from God, what he's saying here is by nature you were children of wrath, that you, you were born into a state there, but you were dead because of your own sins and transgressions, and you walked in them. You were active in them. It's not a passive thing. Because you were dead in sins, there was no hope for you. You, you were already dead in, in, the, in the casket. When life ceases in something, what, what's the word you're being used here? Is it maybe maybe the English word is translated differently? Maybe it's dead, but it's not really dead originally. In the, in the now, it, it just it means dead. It, when when life has ceased to be, when there's no life in something, 
That's the same thing here. There's having no life. No one expects that something that is really dead is going to come back to life on its own. If you run over a squirrel in the road and it dies, you don't expect to come back the next day, drive down the road, and the squirrel pops up right in front of you and comes to life on its own. It just doesn't. It's dead. You don't expect that. Paul says... They lived in a state of death. They walked in their transgressions and sins. Look down your Bibles just for a moment. It says in verse 2, in which you once walked following... How did they walk? They walked in a way that was following the course of this world. Following... This is really this is really awful. Following the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What is he saying here? He's saying you were following the devil. The same devil that's at work in the sons of disobedience now, that's who you were following, even though you might not have known it. You were a Satan worshiper. He sang to them and to all of us that, that we were once not filled with the Holy Spirit. Instead, we followed the same spirit that worked in the sons of disobedience. And that word for powers of the air, um, that was a, a word in, in that time. The powers of the air was a euphemism for where, where demons, the realm of demons. And so the prince of the powers of the air would have been Satan, who was, who was, he was the ruler over demons and has authority over this present evil age, the world. We weren't just dead in sins and trespasses. The devil was at work in us. But our eyes were so darkened that we didn't even know it. We were truly dead. Paul's saying, you may have thought you were free, but you were dead people. You were walking, you were being controlled by the world, by the flesh, your desires, and by the devil. And the devil was once subtly, maybe for some, powerfully working in and influencing you when you were son or daughter of disobedience. You were, you were a rebel against God's authority. That was the state of everyone in this room at one point in time. That wasn't just the state of people who were overtly bad. You see, what does the devil like to do? He likes to convince people that they're really not that bad. He likes to blind them to thinking that they really don't have much of a problem. They never really have sinned. They never really done anything bad. They're a good person. How do you keep a dead person dead? By deceiving them into thinking that they're not. Paul, Paul is saying, look down at verse 3 again. He says, among whom we all once lived. There's, there's no one, no one accepted here. We all once lived among the walking dead, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, where by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What he's saying is that we live in a constant state of being steeped in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and body. It's living like we want and living in a way that seems best to us. The subtle, alluring way it says to us, do as you will. Do what you want. You ever heard that? What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. Do as you want. I'm okay. You're okay. Do what feels right. Do what feels good. It's your thing. Do what you want to do. It's not God's way to live. That's the world's way to live. That's the devil's way to live. From the very beginning of mankind, how did the devil seek to tempt Adam and Eve? He sought to tempt them to, to do what they thought was right in their own eyes. He sought to tempt them to, to make their own choices. Do as you will. Be like God. Be your own God. Be greater than God. What's pure Satanism in its most refined definition? I went on online and looked up, and I wouldn't encourage this. Looked up, okay, how do, how do Satanists, what's their credo? What's a Satanist credo? It's, it's not as blasphemous as you think in one sense, but it's hideously blasphemous. It's this, this, do as thou wilt. What is that spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience? What's the sin nature driving us to apart from God? It's, it's the most heinous and insidious evil. Do as you want. You're your own God. Do what feels right. Do what you think is best. And you live like that. 
You're living following after the prince of the power of the air. You're living dead in your sins. Look out for yourself. Look out for number one. That, that's truly evil. This mentality says that there's, there's no God. That you're not accountable. That we're our own gods. It says that we're not accountable to the creator of all. And instead, we are our own person. Accountable to no one. If you think about it, that's, that's kind of like the American way. This way of living, if left unchecked, it leads to utter debauchery, all kinds of evil and wickedness for the sake of doing what seems right in our own eyes. And this living by the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, it says that God who designed us and created us, He doesn't know what's best. He doesn't want what's best for us. And He doesn't have the right to tell us how to live. So we're going to do as we want. That's following after the prince of the power of the air. And that's got nothing but death. This mindset, it twists the good intentions and the boundaries that God gives mankind for our good. And it says that God doesn't put those rules on us. He doesn't tell us what to do for our good. He does that because he's mean and vindictive. And no, the reason why God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree, the fruit of good and evil, is so that they would live for their good, for their enjoyment. And see, we're tempted to believe the same lie that God's withholding some enjoyment from us. Maybe this morning you're struggling, feeling like God is keeping some good from me. So I'm going to do as I want and do what I think is best. The scriptures here are saying that apart from being in Jesus Christ, all mankind is trapped in that, in the passions of our flesh. We're carrying out desires of the mind and body. We're by nature children of wrath. What are you saying? We're by nature children of wrath. What does that mean? It means that that we've inherited a sinful nature. Our very natures to begin with, we're, we're all personally deri- uh, deserving of divine wrath. But not only that, he says we were walking in sin and transgression. So we started out, our sin nature, our, our nature was corrupted by sin, but then we're actually sinners, walking and disobeying God's laws, walking in active rebellion. And Jesus said in John three thirty six, you don't have to turn there, it's a very short passage, I'll read it for you. John 3:36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life but he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him the wrath of God lives on him what a damning statement the wrath of God abiding on you if you're not obeying the Son do you think you know yourself? Do you think you know the insidious desires that are at work with, within you and that are making you serve the fleshly desires and making you want to do what the sin nature desires? Do you recognize that those things belong to the dead? Do you know that you once belonged to the dead? All of us were once the walking dead. We were all condemned living on death row. It was just inevitable. We've all committed the same sin as Adam and Eve over and over and over again. And every one of us in our nature was born as a child of wrath. What's the product of a life lived doing as you will? It's the justified, holy, righteous wrath, fully earned wrath of God. Never relenting. Prior to being Christ, Paul is telling the Ephesians... The Holy Spirit's telling us we were all once filthy, rotten, disgusting, walking dead who deserved eternal wrath of God and we've all offended God. That's what we deserve. We deserve no less. When you get that kind of diagnosis, that, that changes things. It's meant to change things. When you get this kind of diagnosis, there's only one place you can turn. There's only one place that we can go for help and for hope. You see, I think we, we need to understand our true hopelessness first before we can have any real hope. 
Because otherwise we'll, we'll, we'll put our hope in things that are lesser, in jobs, in people, in money, in relationships, in whatever you can imagine, in trips, in education, whatever you can think of. We'll, we're tempted constantly to put our hope in these lesser things. They're good things, but lesser things. And we can lose perspective and become despondent and despair, discouraged, lose hope. Paul says, no. I want you to know just how rotten you were and dead you were so that you can have real hope. And then Paul tells us in verse 4, the second thing that we're going to focus on this passage, and it's simply this. Point number two, God mercifully makes us alive in Christ Jesus. God mercifully makes us alive in Christ Jesus. Look in verse 4. Look down in your Bibles for a moment. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, What is our hope? Our hope is God. Nowhere else. We were dead, but God came on the scene. We were completely dead in our sins, walking in transgressions, following the devil, but God came. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. No one else would rescue you and I from such a living death, but God. But God did something for we who are helpless and hopeless. But God is more powerful than anything you're facing. But God is able to bring the dead to life. But God overcomes sin. But God gives mercy. But God gives grace. But God love us even when we were rotting in the grave. God loved us and says, I want them. I'm going to make them alive. These first seven verses of chapter 2, they're really all one sentence in the original language. And the, the main subject of that entire sentence, the first seven verses, it's really simple. God. God. God, who is rich in mercy. God, who is great in love. God, who is not only holy and completely good, but God, who is rich in mercy and great in love. That's who God is. We should just pause right now, end, we're not going to, and and worship. This is a wonderful truth that God had mercy on us. He's rich in mercy. He made us alive in Christ Jesus. Look in verse 5. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Isn't that the best news you've ever heard? It's as if God saw us when we were that dead, rotting corpse, smelling bad and looking like the worst thing you can imagine. And God says, I want him. I want her. I want Sam. I want Bob. I, I want Joshua. I, whoever you are. God's looking and says, I want you. Because I'm rich in mercy and I'm great in love. And now we've been set free so that we're no longer enslaved to those passions and are living by the flesh. When we were dead, it says that God made us alive. God's the main focus of these first seven verses. And and what's the main verb in these first seven verses? If if you're studying a a passage like this, you look for What's the main subject here? What's the main verb in the first seven verses? God's the subject. The whole subject in all these first seven verses, it's made us alive. Alive. What was God about doing when we were dead? He was about making us alive. God made us alive. God made us alive. That's what God has done. He resurrected us spiritually with Christ. It's the ultimate fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. Actually, turn over in your Bibles just for a moment. Keep your finger in, keep your finger there in Ephesians. Turn over to Ezekiel. It's pretty close to the front of your Bible. Ezekiel 37. Turn over there for a minute. Ezekiel 37. Read you verses 1 to 13. God gave the prophet Ezekiel a vision. And he says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out of the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of a valley. And it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I, and I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. 
Like, uh, of course not, God. You, you know they're, they're dead. They, they're, they're dry bones. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. That doesn't happen, does it? Look in verse 6. I'll put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, sinews were on them and flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he answered, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I've opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. Go back to Ephesians. In Ephesians, we're seeing the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of, of the prophecy that God gave to Ezekiel. God made those who were spiritually dead and dried up and beyond hope in a desert he, he made us alive in Him. What a miraculous picture. Something that no one could do. Oh Lord, you know. You know the answer, God. I'm not even going to answer that one. But God made us alive in Him. And in verse 6 it says, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. In the resurrection of Jesus, we were made alive. We were raised up when He was raised up. It's already done in our union with Christ. What Paul is telling us and telling the Ephesians is that we share the new life that He received when He rose. And now God counts us as raised up because He raised up our lives from the dead with Jesus. We're no longer in bondage. We don't belong to the devil. We're no longer being held captive by sinful desires. You aren't the person you used to be anymore. What good news. We're, we're with Christ. We're figuratively seated with Him. What does that mean? It means that in the previous verses, He's given Jesus all authority over all principalities, all powers. And in, because we're in Christ, God says, I'm giving you the same authority in Him. Over all principalities, all powers. In Christ Jesus, you are seated with Him. You have the same authority in Christ. So you don't have to fear anything. You don't have to follow the devil anymore. We can stand against all the schemes of the devil now since we're in Christ. We don't have to give in to his temptations. We're not physically there, but we are, we are seated with Him. He, he counts us as having the same authority in Christ. Your place is with Him in the heavenly realms. And it also speaks to the fact that one day, that's, that's where we really belong. That's become our true country. That's the place that if you're a Christian, you, you, you've always longed for and never knew. And that one day you're going go to go back home. Now God counts you as belonging with Him in Christ. Heaven's your home. But why, why did God do all this? Look in verse 7. Look down your Bibles. And it says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why did He do this? He did it so we might be trophies of His grace. He's shown immeasurable kindness to us in Christ so that in the ages to come He might show off His grace, is what He's saying. I love the way that F.F. Bruce said it about this verse. He said, Throughout time and in eternity, throughout time and in eternity, the church, this society, I love how He puts it, the society of pardoned rebels. That's who we are. We should make up t-shirts. We've got to give somebody on that. Society of pardoned rebels. It's a great name. F.F. Bruce coined it, though. Uh, society of pardoned rebels throughout eternity is designed by God to be the masterpiece of His goodness. Throughout time and eternity, the church, the society of pardoned rebels, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of His 
goodness. God saved us so that we might be satisfied in Him and in Him alone. What are you tempted to be satisfied in this morning? What, where are you tempted to place your hope? Where are you tempted to look? Where are you distracted by? Where have you lost hope because you're looking to the place where your hope does not belong? God wants you to be satisfied in Him and His goodness and His mercy and His grace so that you can be trophies of His grace as well. And you may be listening this morning and think that I've been abused, I've been misused, I've been mistreated by people. Maybe even people you thought you could trust or people who said they loved you. God's not overlooking your pain. Please, please know God sees your pain. He sees hurt. He sees and grieves over what's been done to you. But He holds out His hand to you and He, he gently calls your name to come to Him and find rest, to come to Him and find healing, to come to Him and find true hope. You may feel dead inside this morning. God's calling your name. He wants to make you alive in Christ. He wants you to experience His kindness in the redeeming love of Jesus. He wants you to place faith in Him and trust in Him because He does know what's best for you. He wants what's best for you. He's able to do that and you can trust in Him. He wants you to experience His grace that makes all things new. Maybe you've lost hope because you have a crummy situation you're living in. He's the God of all hope. He's the God who makes dead alive. He's the God of all grace. He's the God of all mercy. And then verse 8, it tells us that it's not our faith, though, that saves us. Because sometimes I'm tempted to have faith in my faith. You ever tempted that way, to have faith in your faith? It sounds silly, but I'm there a lot. But he says faith is just the door. Faith is the door that God put in our life that we step through and enter into his kingdom. It's It's... It's the king's good grace that put the door in our life in the first place, though. And it's the king who called us and enables us to step through. And the last point we're just going to briefly look at is that God saved us completely by grace. God saved us completely by grace. And why? To show off his grace. God saved us completely by grace to show off his grace. In verse 8 it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't want any of us to get the wrong idea. If we think our salvation rests on even the merit of our faith, you're going to be misled into a false hope. Maybe you've been wrestling with lacking hope. I would say that maybe your faith has not been in God. Instead, it's been on yourself and your own ability to attain, your own ability to have faith. God says, no, I don't want your faith to be there. I want it to be in my grace. All salvation is completely a gift. Instead, you need to see that your faith is meant to make you stand on God's grace then you'll be like the pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. He's stuck in the slough of despair, mired in it. God opens his eyes so he can see that there's steps. Steps that he can stand on. And we're meant to stand on steps of God's grace that he gives us. He provides for us. It's all from him. Faith is, is the way that we can see those things. See the places that he's, he's given to us to trust into him. If you think that your salvation rests on the merit of faith, though, you're going to be misled into a false hope, an unsure and unstable hope, just like if there was a rope bridge, like in so many movies, and, and all the boards are rotted out, and it's just a matter of time before you're going to fall through. If your faith's resting in your own ability, it's, that's a really feeble, unsure place. If your faith's even resting on your ability to have enough faith, God says, no, Salvation is by grace through faith. And, and that is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. That's good news. Salvation from start to finish is all of God's grace. And the faith is the response that receives what God has graciously given to us in Christ. And then in verse 9, Paul tells us, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Why did God love you? Why did God love me? It wasn't because I, I was so smart it wasn't because you're so smart. It wasn't because you had such merit, because you did so many great things. It wasn't because he foreknew the choice you were going to make. It wasn't because he was marveling at your great face. It wasn't because he, he felt compelled to save you. No, our salvation is completely of him, based on no human merit, no effort on our own. Why do we need that? 
Because we can suddenly begin to think in, in the Christian walk. Once you become a Christian, then you realize that God's calling us to do good works. But what can happen is that we can subtly put our faith and our hope and our confidence and our ability to keep those good works. And so we can get this messed up idea that, okay, God saved me, but I kind of keep it on my own by doing all these good things. And so when you screw up, you think, okay, well, I must not really be a Christian anymore because I messed up. And he says, no, 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 you know what? It, it didn't begin that way. And it's not going to be sustained that way. You didn't, you didn't make yourself alive. You didn't give yourself faith. You didn't save yourself. And that's really good news because I'm going to enable you to not only be saved, but to endure, to continue, so that you don't have to boast. You can't boast. And then it would be like Adam boasting that he created himself. How silly that would be. Adam, the first man, right? He gets there, boom. God says, hey, I made you. Adam says, no, I made myself. Like that would be idiotic. Adam didn't do anything to make himself in the first creation. And so Paul here is using creation language. We were created as his workmanship. It's the same language, same kind of language is used for how he created Adam. Completely ex nihilo or out of nothing. He completed, he created Adam out of nothing. He made Adam. Out of death, he made us alive. He created us as his workmanship. We can't claim the slightest credit for God accepting us. Look in verse 10. It says, For we his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship created. You hear the creation language there. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the good news. We're, we're, we're not the old man. We're now a new creation, a new humanity in Christ. We're a new humanity in Christ. Did you get that? We're, we're no longer of our human father, Adam. We're no longer following the devil. God's made us radically new. God has made us a radical new humanity in Jesus. That's actually the theme of our whole series on Ephesians. If you go on our website and look, that's a whole, the whole theme is a radical new humanity in Christ. That's who we are. That's who God's called us to be. Another way of saying it is we're disciples of Jesus. We're a radical new humanity. And it's meant to affect everything that we do and the way that we live in every area. And I don't want any of us to walk away from here being bored with being a Christian. Listen, you've, you've been made God's workmanship. And you've been given a great call You've been created in Christ, and, and now that you've been created in Christ, God has an assignment for you. He wants you to do good works, not for any merit, but to show His grace. He wants you to do good works so that other people might come to Him. He wants you to do good works, not so that you can boast, but so you can say, look at what He did. He made me alive. I've got a purpose now. It's living for Him because of what He has done to make me alive Good works, they aren't meant to make us impressive or earn favor. They're meant to help us know and understand the joy of living for our Creator. When, Adam told, when God told Adam the good work of not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to go and subdue the earth, that was for Adam's enjoyment, for his good. Somehow we've got this messed up notion now that as Christians that when God gives us commands, they're not for our enjoyment or good. And God says, no, I created you. I know what's best for you. Trust me, this is best for you. When I prohibit things, it's because I know what's best for you. I want you to live for me and testify to my grace. What good works has God prepared for, for you to show His grace? Maybe you find that you've kind of lacked some, some clarity in, in what you're called to do. You know, it, it, the calling doesn't have to be that, that specific. Okay, I'm called specifically to do this and this and this and this and there. Now, you know what you're called to do? You're called to show His grace by doing good works, by living for Him in, in all your areas of life. So this morning, what good works has God prepared for you? Where's God calling you to, to live in Him, to live in the joy of who he's called you to be. Where does God want you to show his grace? All of mankind walked in darkness, carrying out the evil deeds of the flesh. It says, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved. I'm going to ask you to stand just for a moment, and if the ushers can come forward and begin to pass out the, the elements for offering, we're going to 
celebrate and have the band come forward to you. We're going to celebrate the good news we've received this morning. And ushers, as soon as you come forward, you can just begin to pass out the bread and the juice. If you'll hold the bread and the juice until we can take it together. If you're not a Christian yet, you don't, you don't know Jesus, you don't know what I'm talking about, go ahead and let that pass. Parents use discernment as you're thinking about whether your kids are Christians or not. God saved us so that we might be trophies of His grace. He saved us so that we might not do as we will on our own. He didn't save us to leave us there. He saved us to be trophies of His grace. He saved us to to have true joy and true hope in, in the one place that will never change. You see, when God made us alive, you'll never be... made unalive. You'll you'll never be dead again. That's a place of true joy. What do we celebrate when we celebrate communion? We celebrate that Jesus died instead of us. We celebrate that His body was pierced through with nails and He received the punishment that we deserved... He was whipped, he was beaten, he was bruised, he was rejected. He experienced all the pain and suffering of humanity. He was mocked so that we might be made alive. His blood flowed freely until he was dead so that we might know his life in his blood. That's what we celebrate whenever we celebrate communion. So as we're about to take communion, I want you to think about the fact that you were once dead. You were once completely and utterly dead. But because Jesus died for you, God's made us alive. He performed a miracle. He called to you when you were in your grave and you didn't even know it. And He called you out when you, when you had no merit. He says, I want you. I'm going to make you alive. Let's eat the bread this morning, remembering it's his life for ours. This morning as we prepare to drink the juice, the juice symbolizes the fact that his life was poured out utterly on our behalf. But in his blood now we have forgiveness of sins completely. Because all of our sins were placed on Him on the cross. And so when He was raised to newness of life, we were too. And we're no longer in bondage and slavery to our sin. We're no longer following the course of the world. We're no longer enslaved to the devil. But it's His blood that has has given us complete and total forgiveness. Let's drink the juice this morning, remembering that.